This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with acclaimed historian Frank Bongiorno. Frank returned for an in-depth conversation about his new book, Dreamers and Schemers. It's the first full political history of Australia, presenting a social and cultural history of our political life. From pre-contact times, exploring Indigenous political and governance systems, to colonial times, the 20th century, all the way through to the current day. It's lovely to be with you this Tuesday morning for the last show of the year for Uncommon Sense. And who better to have on the program especially in the first slot where we normally talk about Australian politics at the federal level in particular, but Frank Bongiorno, who I've had the great pleasure of having on this show twice, I think, this year. Frank is a historian. He certainly has a significant interest and publishing history around Australian history, so many different areas of it, of course. And this book that Frank has written called Dreamers and Schemers, A Political History of Australia, certainly is comprehensive and it covers a very wide time range and we're going to be doing our best to cover some of the key moments and areas that maybe you're not that familiar with. There are parts that you would be familiar with because you might have even lived through them given that this book does take us right up until the present day. Frank has been so generous to chat with us before in the past, especially around issues of funding for our arts and cultural institutions, and that's certainly been as part of his role as president of the Australian Historical Association as well. He also generously joined me with Joy DeMusi to talk about the late Stuart McIntyre, who's also was a brilliant historian as well. So I welcome back onto the program. Professor Frank Bongiorno. Hi there, Frank, and thank you very much for coming back onto the show. Oh, thanks, Sam. It's, I'm absolutely delighted to, to be talking with you again. Thank you. Yeah, I always really enjoy our chats, and I loved hearing from you and Michelle Arrow. I think it was on, on September 27 when we were talking about such important issues with, around funding of our cultural institutions because it seems that that story is continuing to play out and we won't get to cover that today but it just shows how important historians history culture and the arts is to our intellectual lives but then of course politics is always enmeshed into that naturally and that certainly takes us to this book, which is really a social and cultural history of our political life. And I, you know, really enjoyed reading this because as someone who studied Australian history at uni, and um, as I mentioned off air, it's my favourite area to study. I really loved hearing about all of these characters, not just those big well-known ones, but some of the lesser known ones as well. And I guess I wanted to start out the conversation by asking about this book and the ambition behind the book. What really led you to decide to tackle a time range like this and a, a project like this in the way that it's also formulated? So not kind of like a pure political biography of, um, you know, every prime minister since the start of time. What you know, led you to this particular project in its uh, scope and size? Yeah, thanks, Amy. Yeah, I was really interested in the kind of question of of what people had expected of their political system in Australia. And by pe- people, I, I, I meant, yeah, everyone. I, did, I didn't just mean political leaders or people who were necessarily involved in social movements or were you know, heavily involved in political activism. I, I wanted to just ask that basic question of, of what people had expected, demanded of the, their political system, and then to go on, I really, to, to talk about how they'd gone about making it work for them and, and how that system had responded. And, and it was important to me not to begin, you know, with federation. When, when I was working on this, people would often ask me, oh, you know, you, you're starting in 1901, are you? It's since federation. I said, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going back. And and the book begins in pre, with pre-contact Aboriginal societies. Um, and, and that, you know, obviously ref, reflects uh, uh, the ways in which our understanding of time and history in Australia has changed. Oh, look, even I think over the last decade or so, it seemed to me to be really important to explore how 
uh, Indigenous people had practised politics before the arrival of, of the British and, and also the ways in which they'd drawn on those traditions of self-government in, in later expressions and modes of politics. But I was really, um, I mean, I taught in this area for a very long time and was, I think, very conscious of the ways in which to understand the politics of this country. You needed to delve into culture. You needed to delve into people's mentalities, into their psychologies. You also needed to delve uh, into the 18th and 19th centuries for, for, for the settler society as well, that it wasn't enough simply to start in 1901. And we saw this recently with, you know, Scott Morrison and his famous multiple ministries. And, and you know, I think if you'd asked people, well, what was wrong with what he did, they'd probably say, oh, he shouldn't have taken all those, those ministries, um, which is true, probably true. But the point, of course, is that, he did it secretly, and, and that breached not probably, it may have breached the, the Constitution, but what it actually breached were principles, conventions that go right back deep into, into the colonial history of Australia. And, and it, it, you know, it, it seemed to me a really vivid example of the ways in which we, if we want to understand contemporary politics, politics today, we can't just begin in 1901. Uh, we, we need to, to actually go back much further, and in, in that instance, to the, the, the very origins of you know, parliamentary government or responsible government in Australia. It sounds like a very tumultuous time when you're reading about it and also the very different setups or arrangements that colonies had because there didn't seem to be a whole lot of streamlining or, you know, similarities, hence, I guess, federation. I wanted to talk, first of all, about that pre-contact time because you really do cover that in a very interesting way and you say that essentially... Aboriginal people at the time and there were different First Nations, of course, and a lot of the accounts of how they were interacting and organising themselves are from settlers and observations that were written down by white British migrants who have come here and, you know, stolen that land. So obviously there's a bit of a, a challenge for a historian as well to, you know, read between the lines around some of the primary evidence but also even the secondary evidence, you say, has led us down a certain false narrative in this area where you say that even one American anthropologist in the 1950s wrote that the Aboriginal people were, quote, a people without sovereignty, a people without politics, which you then go on to show was not the case. So could you take us through what those observations were and what you've come to discover about how Aboriginal politics played out pre-contact? Yeah, um, you're quite right, Amy, that, that as late as the 50s, there was still a kind of denialism about this. And I guess what we see here is a phenomenon that, you know, has been such a part of the, the kind of settler imagination when it's contemplated Indigenous society, and that is to kind of see without seeing. And that, that was very much the case, I think, with politics and government. So, you know, early explorers were often quite acute observers in many ways, and they would write vivid descriptions of things like um, Aboriginal decision-making, assemblies, um, the processes by which uh, Indigenous societies um, you know, were, were making decisions about you know, management of their resources, uh, uh, decisions about who uh, would be permitted to marry whom and so on. So they, they could see this happening, but at the same time they would deny that Indigenous people had governments. Um, they would deny that they had laws uh, in anything like the sense that the European people had laws you know, because they weren't written down um, or at least they didn't feel as though they were written down. Of course, we know that Indigenous law is, is often, uh, you know, a part of the song, song lines of the country. It's, it's, it's a part that can be embodied in rock art in a whole range of ways. So there was a kind of um, a, a strange denialism that I guess we see in so many aspects, don't we, of, of, of kind of settler or white observation of Indigenous society where they can kind of recognise a, a, a certain richness uh, before their eyes and yet they kind of deny uh, that society the dignity of having a politics and, and government. And I think that was to do with its aspects of its illegibility. That is, they, they couldn't quite see the chiefs or they couldn't see royalty in, in the way that, um, you know, British people used to a hierarchical British society were, were kind of accustomed to seeing. And I, th I think that's very much a part. But the, the, the actual observations when you, you um, read them, and I, I quote a couple in, in, in the book, 
are incredibly rich. I mean, you're often witnessing something that looks, it could be a colonial parliament, you know, it, it kind mm-hmm. of has a, a robustness and, and liveliness to its decision-making that, that you know, could, could you know, be mistaken for the, the kinds of decision-making institutions that the settlers themselves was, were, were beginning to, to, to set up. By that stage, so yeah, it's it's a it's a kind of interesting paradox, I think. But we see it, don't we, in so many other aspects of the failure, I guess, of settler society to fully appreciate the richness of Indigenous society. Oh, absolutely, always. It's a great way to start the book, and it's not just the start. Of course, you bring in how history. Australian history or settler history is enmeshed with obviously the frontier conflict and a whole range of other issues and also, you know, minority voices as well, like uh, the Chinese and women, etc. So that's also another wonderful element to that that we'll get to in a minute. But maybe if we follow on from that moment and talk a little bit about some of the colonies, the early colonies and how they were set up and the politics of them. And, you know, I was really interested in the language that was used, setting it up between, you know, those who were convicts who came across and those who weren't and the use of convict labour and how that became controversial when a certain politician decided to favour them more. You know, can you talk to us a little bit about some of these aspects of colonial politics, which to us now probably seems quite odd, but at the time obviously was a really crucial part of how society was organised? Yes, I mean, in the very early years, Amy, I mean, the, the key division in a lot of ways is is the free and the freed you know, in other words, those who who came free to the colony as officials or as as sometimes free migrants, and and those who had been convicts, and and um, had had been you know had served their their terms, and and that emerged as a really significant division. And in a lot of ways, the emergence of a kind of popular politics in the colonies, which I think really happens in in New South Wales, particularly in the eighteen twenties. It really centres on, you know, emancip- what, what you know, we might call emancipist politics, that is the politics of those who had been convicts and who still suffered certain civil disabilities. Um, it, it, in other words, there is this idea that once you'd served your term, you should be basically able to get on with your life. And Governor Macquarie, for instance, was, was an advocate of that particular view, but not everyone accepted that. And a lot of the politics that occurs in that very early period is is very, if you like, face to face. You know, th- there aren't institutions, assemblies, cabinets in the way that we understand them. So, politics was often practiced in other places. It was practiced in the courtroom where factions would play out. Um, it was uh, practiced in in face to face, you know, sort of, if you like, encounters in the street. You know, who acknowledged whom, who refused to shake hands with whom. Who would, uh, who you would invite to your table, and and who you would, uh, you know, refuse to dine with, uh, who uh, the governor would, uh, uh, you know, allow to attend or invite to government house. Um, sometimes faction factionalism was played out in refusals of invitations to government house as a way of of signalling a disapproval of the governor's actions. So the, the the great divisions often considered between emancipists and exclusives, exclusives being those who, who belonged, I guess, with what we'd say to the, the middle or upper classes and, and, and came as free, often the military officers, landowners. And it is, it is a major division. But the thing that really interests me about that early period is the highly personalised nature of the politics. Um, I mean, a classic way of signalling disapproval of a governor was, almost has a social media-like aspect to it. You, you'd circulate what was called a pipe, and a pipe would effectively be a, a little um, a rhyme, a rude rhyme, often mm-hmm. ridiculing or satirising the, the governor, condemning the governor, anonymous, of course, um, a little bit like a kind of anonymous Twitter account, I suppose, today, and that would circulate. And then the governor, of course, would, would be you know, in a rage and, and, and seeking to, you know, who did this and to try and find out who was responsible for it. So that, that's kind of the ways in which politics played out. I mean, you also had, you know, the occasional uprising and we had a military dictatorship, of course, in, or a military regime in, in New South Wales uh, uh, for, for a little while after January uh, 1808, you know, the famous Rum Rebellion, as it later came to be called. So 
um, you know, where the, the, the military officers effectively overthrew Governor Bly. So you, you have got a rich politics, but it's a very face-to-face politics, I think. And, and uh, I mean, politics always has a face-to-face character, but I think it was, you know, particularly personalised because of the lack of, of institutions or what we'd recognise as institutions in the very early his- histories of the colonies. Mm. And certainly you also say that a lot of these governors uh, of the various colonies were quite autocratic often. A lot of the power would rest within them and uh, people would question where that power is emanating from or, you know, there would be sometimes challenges to their authority. How did that all work in the early times of the colonies? Yeah, a really important thing to remember about early colonial Australia is it's an era of counter-revolution. So it's all happening really in the wake of the French Revolution. I mean, uh, the the first fleet arrives before the, 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 the storming of the Bastille, but by the time the second fleet arrives in 1790, the, the, the French Revolution has occurred and, indeed, that fleet brings news of it. So, you know, early colonial Australia is, is develops in a period when there's a particularly intense fear on the part of the British ruling classes of an uprising, of revolution, of the working classes. And that tends to produce autocratic forms of rule, and that occurs right through the empire. Um, so there's a move away from the more participatory forms of government that had occurred in North America towards a a, a kind of autocratic approach that you get with the early governors in New South Wales and and Tasmania or Van Diemen's land, as as it was known. The problem for, for those governors is there was always a lingering suspicion that what they were doing was illegal because, you know, since the 17th century, um, you know, it was the, the parliament had clearly you know, been a, a source of, of sovereignty and authority, that the idea that you could just set up a governor and they could kind of rule without reference to the, the House of Commons uh, was rejected by, you know, some legal critics. So there was always a kind of a suspicion that the, 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 the laws and regulations, uh, even things like pardons that were being uh, offered by the, the the governor in New South Wales or in Van Diemen's land was actually illegal. And uh, a lot of the institutions that were formed from the 1820s were really formed not to create a more participatory system, but to shore up the legality of the position of the governor. And when we're moving on edging closer and, and into the 19th century, when we're thinking about some of the more formal, you know, structures that eventuated, how much of the structures like whether there's an upper house or a lower house and who is governing and how did that all come about and was it influenced by any particular country external to Australia more than others when they were setting it up in each colony? Because it did seem rather messy and there were different approaches in different colonies. Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, there were differences between the colonies. Um, I mean, the, the key influence is always Britain and, and, and Westminster. And uh, it, it's sort of taken for granted, there are occasional flirtations in the other direction, but it's sort of taken for granted that you know, when, when you set up a proper self-governing system, it'll be bicameral. That is, there'll be two two chambers, and that, that, of course, replicates the British system with its House of Commons and House of Lords. And the other aspect that, that emerges is this notion, it was called responsible government, I mean, parliamentary government, which is what I was mentioning earlier in relation to Morrison's breaches of it. And that came really out of arrangements that had evolved in Britain in the 1700s, in, in the 18th century, when you know things like the office of prime minister had emerged in a very gradual way. There was also an influence uh, coming from, from Canada. So Canada had an uprising kind of revolution, if you like, in the 1830s. And coming out of that was this notion of responsible government. What this, the, the key element of that was that the, the, the government, the executive, the cabinet, would be responsible to the parliament. It would be answerable to the parliament, derived from the parliament, particularly the lower house of the parliament, so the equivalent of a house of commons. And what happened in Australia is that the the systems that emerged in the various colonies all embodied that particular principle, that principle that that the executive or government comes from the parliament. Um, It has to have the confidence of the parliament, the numbers, if you like, to be able to continue governing. And there were variations, though. I mean, the great problem that the colonists faced is 
how you could, you know, craft institutions that were British and, and would be recognisably British in a country that wasn't Great Britain, in a place that wasn't the United Kingdom. How do you do that? Because there's no aristocracy. Therefore, who do you put in that upper house? There's no lords to stick up there. So who, who joins the upper house? Um, there's no established church. It's uh, you know, basically decided by the mid-1830s under Governor Burke, Richard Burke, that Australia wasn't going to have an established church, that the various denominations would be on an equal basis. So there were no bishops to put in the upper house. Mm. And so the issue was, so how do you do this? And, and the various colonies, of course, came up with different sorts of schemes. So some uh, Victoria came up with a scheme where the, the legislative council, the upper house, would be elected on a really restricted property franchise and it'd be even harder to be able to qualify to, to actually, you know, to, to sit in, in, in the legislative council. You need to be immensely wealthy. And, and the laws were basically passed to, to ensure that that occurred. New South Wales went for a different system. They went for a nominated system. So the, the uh, members of the Legislative Council would be nominated by the governor. Um, there was a suggestion early in the 1850s that came from William Wentworth, W.C. Wentworth, for an actual Australian nobility that would go into the upper house of the New South Wales Parliament. Um, and it was ridiculed famously by a radical and Republican called Daniel Dennehy as a bunyip aristocracy, or the term sometimes is you still hear it really. But all, all of these were kind of attempts to adapt a British system to colonies that were British and regarded themselves as British but weren't actually Britain, that they had different social arrangements, different class structures, uh, but were a different kind of society. And, and that's really, if you like, the big story, you know, I'd call it the meta-narrative, I suppose, of what happens in in Australia in, in the 19th century in terms of its political culture. Yeah, it's really interesting, that idea of aristocracy and, you know, who should be governing the colonies. And I loved the descriptions and recounting of the gentlemen's clubs. There's obviously Sydney's Australian Club, the Queensland Club and the Melbourne Club. And you say that all of those clubs contributed generous numbers to parliaments and governments. And with Victoria's first premier, William Clark Haynes, you say that his ministry was exclusively made up of gentlemen and clubmen and that members of the prestigious Melbourne Club were a quarter of the new assembly in 1856. So it was really interesting to hear that in the 1850s, mid-1850s to even through till the 1880s, for example, in Victoria, you know, members of the Melbourne Club were dominating a lot of these political leadership positions. And, you know, it was just interesting to hear just how significant a role they played, because I feel that they've never really come up in any of the readings I've ever had describing politicians and, and people who were part of the governing or ruling class. Yeah, I think that's right, Amy. I mean, the dominant narrative that we sort of have of, of kind of colonial Australia, perhaps Australia generally, is that they were sort of radical or advanced democracies. And, and there is a lot in that. I mean, um, but they did have manhood suffrage in, in five of the colonies. Uh, well, that's not true, sorry, in, in about three of the colonies. They had very wide franchise in others. But, you know, generally they, they were democratic in that sense. And, and, you know, the ideas of the working class movements in Britain and particularly the Chartist movement, um, you know, that uh, things like secret ballots and, and, and uh, you know, a whole range of measures uh, were taken up in the colonies much earlier than in, in certainly in Britain itself and, and most other places. And yet, as you point out, I mean, the idea that uh, a politician should be a gentleman, that the, the leadership of uh, the political leadership of this colonial society you know, should have a certain nobility about them, that they should be men of substance and property, um, successful men. They, these ideas are very, very powerful. And, again, they come from Britain. I mean, they're, they're inherited from Britain. Uh, they're not easy to apply in Australia where you do have a very wide male franchise through the 19th century, not um, women until right at the end of the century. And and, and so the gentlemen, yeah, there is this huge overlap, if you like, between the membership of these various uh, gentlemen's clubs and parliament is perhaps not very surprising. But even there, there's a tension because, you know, the, the 
commentators and observers of the colonial political scene noticed that it was pretty rugged. I mean, there was a lot of bad behaviour in those early parliaments, you know, politicians getting completely drunk, occasional resort to physical violence. There was a sense that they weren't measuring up to the high, you know, what was seen as the gentlemanly and high standards of Westminster. But, um, yeah, the notion of the kind of the gentleman as a natural leader of society is, is, is actually a much more resilient idea, I think, in our political culture in the 19th century than we give it credit for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one part of that story as well, following on from that, is the instability of these colonial governments. As you say, there were criticisms of them, you know, not quite living up to the standards that people had for politicians at the time. And I loved the line that you have where you say colonial governments came and went with a frequency that makes Italian politics post-World War II seem stable. You point out one of the extreme examples with South Australia looking at cabinets and you were saying that the colony of South Australia had 47 governments in 36 years. And I wondered, you know, was that because everything else was topsy-turvy in South Australia? Like, Because I loved the little anecdote of the fact that the upper house was actually below the lower house in in location. Yeah, that's right. I mean, South Australia... A particularly acute example, but in fact, they were all like this, really. Uh, that the, the governments came and went, and and, and look, there are a few drivers of it. I, I I guess I'm able to make the joke about Italian politics with my surname. I feel mm. as though I, but, but yeah, look, all the colonies really operated in this this sort of way, and it's driven by a few things. I mean, one of the things that drives it is that politicians, most politicians, don't get paid. The first pay came in in Victoria in 1870, but, um, you know, the other colonies, it was even later than that. So politicians didn't get paid, but ministers did. So if you landed a, a, a position as a minister, you actually got a very good salary, um, whereas if you're sitting on, you know, what we call the backbench today, you got nothing. And, and, and so there was obviously built into this system a kind of motivation for people to manoeuvre in order to, to, to you know, um, get into those positions of authority which happened also to be salaried. So I think that was one of the the drivers. It's not the the only one. I mean, the other is, of course, you know, the fact there aren't any political parties until, uh, again, Victoria sort of pioneers them in the 1870s. And the lack of political parties gives a fluidity to, to the politics. It means that alliances and coalitions tended to come and go. Depending on the issues of the day, there was a lot of bargaining of a kind that We'd probably dismiss as corruption today, which, you know, a classic deal might be I'll support a railway line going through, you know, the town that you represent if you, you know, support uh, our government and, and, and you know, for, for until next year. This sort of bargaining um, and dealing was absolutely central to the system with a lot of patronage involved too, you know. So, in other words, the the use of public money for getting giving jobs to people and 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 contracts to people. So, it, it, it you know it had the appearance of being a pretty corrupt system in some ways. Um, but you know, one of the, the the features of that system is that it also had this fluidity where governments tended to go. It was very hard to keep a government in office terribly long if you were constantly engaged in that kind of dealing and there was a, a fluidity where, you know, people weren't um, subjected, if you like, to the kinds of party disciplines that we're familiar with today. Yeah, yeah. And one element of this in Victoria, of course, is someone by the name of Graham Berry. And uh, I know that Sean Skelmer recently wrote a book about Graham Berry. I've always been quite intrigued by him and certainly the way you describe him, he sounds like someone who captured the imagination or excitement of the population. And uh, you also say that the National Reform and Protection League emerging in the early months of 1877 was Australia's first mass political party. What does Graham Berry do in Victoria and how is he associated with, you know, political parties and how does his rule come about and how does that play out in Victorian colonial politics? Yes, I mean, Sean's biography of Berry is, is a central reading for someone um, exploring this and, and, and uh, I'm very indebted to Sean's work actually in, in my account of that period. Yeah, look, Berry does a number of things. He manages to stitch together an alliance of three 
really three key groups, and it was um, farmers, urban manufacturers and, and workers, and, and to some extent miners too, you know, sort of remnants of, of the, you know, there, there was still quite a significant number of gold miners, for instance, in Victoria in that period. And, and he successfully brings them together in, in an alliance um, and the, 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 you, you get the emergence of a kind of a mass politics. And I, I think one of the drivers of it is actually parliamentary pay too. So as I mentioned earlier, parliamentary pay came in as a temporary measure in Victoria in 1870. And I think that became much easier with parliamentary pay to actually form more stable political organisations because um, it's very, it was very difficult for most people, and we're talking about men in that period, to stay in parliament, to stay active in politics very long unless you were, say, a successful businessman or somehow independently wealthy. But the arrival of parliamentary pay... Um, gave, I think, an opportunity to figures like Berry to to form more stable uh, alliances and organisations. And and what you get with, you know, the National Reform Protection League is indeed, you know, something that begins to look like a mass political party with branches, constitutions, rules, and, and I suppose sanctions too, a sense that, you know, when someone's gone into parliament that they're subject to the disciplines of that party. It's much looser than anything we'd... Uh, be familiar with today, but nonetheless, um, it, it certainly looks like a pioneering example of a mass politics and a mass political party. And Victoria, as ever, I mean, it was the most turbulent, really, of the colonies in terms of its politics, and that came back to the constant or regular conflicts between the two chambers of parliament, uh, democratically or, you know, sort of popular lower house and an upper house that's elected, as I said earlier, on this really restricted franchise, which has essentially just rich people in it, um, and which is immovable. I mean, you can't really get rid of them. Um, there's there's no way they can't be dissolved. Um, they have elections. You know, a fifth of them go up every two years. So, you know, terms go for 10 years. They're, they're virtually immovable, and that gives a turbulent character to the politics of Victoria, and Berry is very much a part of that story in the 1870s. I've also really appreciated you drawing in the story of women because obviously women were not passive subjects. Certainly women played a key role in politics but in a different way. And there were some women who were trying to become a politician. For example, Vida Goldstein certainly you know, ran a number of times for office. But there were also women like Catherine Helen Spence who was an amazing advocate and writer and, you know, was working behind the scenes uh, during Federation negotiations or wanted to be part of that. And I wondered if you could take us through some of the really impressive women of the time and how they were participating in politics and how that might have been different to how men were able to. Yes, I mean, um, women are involved in various uh, political affairs right from the beginning. I mean, that kind of personalised politics that I talked about in the early colonial period necessarily involved women, the world of, of you know, who, who was going to be invited to whose house and, and, and so on. If, if that was politics, women clearly played a major role in that in, in the early period. But when we move, yes, into the middle of the 19th century, I talk about Adelaide Ironside, who was a, a poet and artist, heavily involved in radical and republican circles in, in Sydney in, in the 1850s, you know, associating with Daniel Dennehy, who I mentioned earlier, but also figures like Henry Parks and John Dunmore Lang. There's, there are traditions to women's uh, uh, petitioning, which I think is, is an interesting phenomenon. I mean, women seem to have engaged particularly with that issue you mentioned earlier, and that's the issue of convict transportation and the attempts that were made from time to time by the British government to uh, resume convict transportation to New South Wales. Um, obviously, it continued in Western Australia into the 1860s, and we find women petitioning around those sorts of issues. Um, but yeah, women were present um, at, at, at public meetings, often in a subordinate role. So there was a tradition of women in big public meetings and banquets sitting in the gallery um, where, you know, the men would be sort of dining and toasting down below. But what's interesting about that, of course, is that, you know, there, there is a sense of women connecting uh, with the political process in that, even if they do so in a way that subordinates them to, to men's activities and, and interests. But yeah, major figures that you mentioned, like Vader Goldstein and, and, and also, yes, Catherine Helen Spence, 
Um, There's an amazing story of Victoria in the 1860s. The Victorian Parliament accidentally enfranchised um, a, a, a quite significant number of women in 1863 because it extended the parliamentary franchise, the vote, to anyone who qualified to vote in local elections. And there were many women who were ratepayers who qualified to vote in elections. So there's an election in 1864 in Victoria at which women voted. And what I was really struck by when I read about this um, and, and, you know, looking at the the press responses was the matter-of-fact way in which the media responded to it. Um, In fact, you know, the Argus, quite a conservative newspaper at the time, basically says, well, what's wrong with this? I mean, they're obviously (laughs) independent women, they're property owners, why shouldn't they vote? Um, but it only lasted a single election. Um, the, the parliament saw that it, it made a mistake in its own terms and, and, and reversed its decision. And, and, of course, women's suffrage didn't really become a major issue again until the 1880s. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's interesting that the, the phenomenon of women voting, and they did vote at many municipal elections, so it's important mm-hmm. to recognise that, that there were women ratepayers who, who, you know, were, were, were basically involved in politics in that sense, at least through voting, you know, right through the, the, the second half of the 19th century. Um, yeah, so it's, it's an interesting... And, and, of course, you know, once you get to the period around federation and the, the arrival of votes for women in parliamentary elections, it does help to reshape aspects of the political agenda. There are certain aspects of the Australian welfare state, such as the old age pension, which, of course, paid the same amount to men and women, um, which I, I think you could probably tie to the, the, the growing, you know, political sway of, of women as they acquired votes in the, the, the latter part of the 19th century and the early 20th century. Yeah, I love that story. It's something I came across when I was researching uh, Vida Goldstein and... Um some of the women first elected, but I love that, you know, Victoria were the first to kind of give women the vote in a way by accident, but then it seems that they were the laggards in the end to formally give women a vote at all of those political levels. Indeed, and that is such a reflection of of that institutional pattern that I I mentioned earlier of of the Legislative Council, a conservative council that wouldn't have it. So, you know, you had the, the assembly time and time again, you know, from the mid-1890s, you know, including the Premier of the day putting up legislation to enfranchise women, being it was just knocked over every time by that powerful legislative council, yeah. Mm-hmm. And another group that I mentioned a bit earlier were Chinese migrants and often, you know, called sojourners, those who were coming across many not intending to stay but to make their fortunes on the goldfields and then go back. But, of course, there were people, um, Chinese people, who became naturalised and stayed in Australia. They contributed so much to the country, but they also engaged in politics in formal ways with petitions but also writing pamphlets. And you mentioned one excellent pamphlet that I've actually have read before, The Chinese Question in Australia from 1879, which um, was co-written by three authors, uh, including one of my favourites, Louis R. Moy. You talk about the Melbourne merchant Lo Kong Meng and you talk about you know some of the arguments that they were making and why they should be given equal rights in terms of access to mining licenses and getting to Australia. And there were a whole range of discriminatory laws and regulations in place that certainly targeted the Chinese. And I just really enjoyed your recounting of some of their arguments the ways that they're challenging this idea of China and the Chinese as being an inferior race because they're saying no one can say so who knows anything of our history, our language, our literature, our government or our public and private life. China had reached a very high stage of civilization when Britain was peopled by naked savages. You know, a lot of their arguments are very compelling and they're also exceptionally well argued. So I wondered, you know, what you thought about the ways that the Chinese miners, but also the Chinese more broadly, those merchants and business people and other more influential individuals, how they were advocating for themselves through the formal politics of the day. Yeah, it's it's interesting that this is a political system that for the most part is designed to advance the interests of white men, um, of, of white you know, British men. But it does open up these spaces, doesn't it? And 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 yes, it, it it does open spaces to Chinese participation in the political system. And you get petitioning 
from the gold fields from a pretty early stage, from about the late 1850s, uh, you know, protesting things like discriminatory poll taxes, you know, on, on, on Chinese migrants and other forms of, of sort of fiscal discrimination that they experienced. Um, you get um, the, the formation of delegations to, to people in authority and you get, again, Chinese voting. You get voting at both parliamentary and municipal elections. Uh, to the extent that, that you know, that the, the role of Chinese as voters was, was actually a, a subject of discussion in Victoria around 1880, you know, in terms of where their political allegiances lay, which, you know, is such a, has such a modern feel about it, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. this was that was d- discussed and debated around the 2022 federal election. So, look, it, it, it's a really interesting phenomenon. I mean, that um, insistence, I think, on, on um, the dignity of Chinese civilization and culture and on the legitimacy of their interests within a colonial political order. Um, some, of course, had come from British societies, like British colonial societies in East Asia, um, and, and so were probably already familiar with some of the modes of you know, British politics before they came to Australia. They certainly practised them here, and it's it's really interesting. I mean, in, in 1888, there was a big panic over the arrival of a, a ship called the Afghan ca- carrying, uh, you know, significant numbers of, of Chinese migrants, and, uh, you know, it sort of led to a, a protest movement. But I was struck that even in the midst of that, Henry Parks in, in New South Wales receives a delegation of Chinese merchants and businessmen protesting against the way that the government was treating their fellow countrymen. And I found that very interesting that, that there do seem to be these spaces for participation. It's it's not participation on an equal basis, but it is nonetheless uh, a form of political participation. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And if we think about federation and how that was coming about and what the considerations were at the time, especially around drafting the constitution. You bring up a utilitarian like Jeremy Bentham and you talk about his influence or the ways that his ideas seem reflected in the general population's view of government or the role of a government in supporting and providing you know, baseline services to the population. Could you share with us how you saw that part of Australia's history forming, you know, that cauldron of ideas and where we ended up as and whether you think that thread has continued on? Yes, I mean, I used to be really a bit sceptical about this uh, sort of reading of Australian politics as being, you know, sort of distinctively utilitarian um, or Benthamite, um, you know, that notion that it's all about um, practicalities, the greatest good for the greatest number, that people don't have a, a concept of abstract rights, that ideas don't play much of a role. You know, it's, it's captured in the, the historian W.K. Hancock's idea that Australians see the state or government as one vast public utility, I think was his phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I must confess that, you know, a lot of this book was written under lockdown here in Canberra last year, um, and, and it is in, in a lot of ways, you know, some of my perspectives I think are a product of the experiences of, you know, the pandemic of the last few years. And I do think that, that the pandemic brought out that utilitarian aspect very strongly. I mean, if you go back to those early months of 2020, I talk about this in the latter part of the book, that, you know, government's instincts were... Um, in, entirely protective, weren't they? It was about closing borders. It was mm. about uh, bringing in payments that would act as a buffer, I guess, against the the, the economic crisis that was seen to be uh, inevitable uh, as an accompaniment of of, of the health crisis. Um, and, you know, to me that seemed to be a kind of ethic and a, and a response very rooted in our, our much longer, longer history. I mean, you take it all the way back to the 1780s. I mean, the, one of the key institutions, uh, if that's the word for it, in, in early colonial Australia was the commissariat, which was the government store. And the role of the government store, and the governor had ultimate responsibility for it, the role of the government store was basically to ensure that um, no settlers starved. You know, even the lowliest convict would not be allowed to starve. And, and I, I saw the reach of the, of, the, of the government store, of the commissariat, in a lot of those measures that both federal and state governments took in the very early years, a very early period of the pandemic in, in 2020. And I think that does speak to a 
a kind of utilitarian notion of government. The government is there to, to, to protect, to look after. And, of course, that, that has a, a darker side because we know that um, people aren't treated equally. We know governments look after some people much, much better than others. We know that power plays a role in this, that, that you know, um, we saw that during the pandemic. Some people's interests were seen to be much more important than other people's interests, you know, the, the, the sort of fully employed tradie as against, say, the, the casual worker, um, uh, the, the arts worker, the university worker and so on. Um, so inequalities are certainly there, but that ethic that government is kind of there to, to protect, um, to, to, to take practical decisions um, that will produce this kind of greatest good, I think is a really, it's a really powerful strand in the political culture and a very enduring one. Indeed. It also reminded me of, you know, this idea of volunteerism, especially during the wars. And, you know, there was a lot of reliance on getting well, in this case, mostly men, but also women as nurses, to volunteer and, you know, serve on the front lines of World War One, for example. So there is this kind of contract, a bit of a social contract between the government, you know, you do this for me and I'll invest myself back into the state and also obviously imperial motivations as well early on. But it also reminded me of another aspect of, you know, Australian society, which is this significant pushback against conscription, which seems to have happened so many times. And there were, you know, two referenda in, um, you know, 1916 and 1917 during World War One. But of course, conscription didn't die uh, at that moment either. You know, it's still been a debate that clearly has come up throughout your book and throughout history. And it reminded me, you know, that it does seem to draw out some of these kind of key political battlegrounds or or at least divisions, lines that were drawn at the time around religion, uh, but also class, you know, between workers and big business. And I wonder if you could tell us, you know, a little bit about how you see some of these dividing lines in politics in the, you know, 20th century and how they either, you know, changed or stayed the same. Because obviously religion isn't necessarily... Um, as strong in Australian society today. But, you know, in the early times, it seems like that was a, a significant identifier of people and a, a point of contest. Yeah, I think that's very much so. I mean, there's a lot of religion in this book, isn't there, for a book about politics? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and it's, I mean, religion is is one of the kind of, I suppose, wellsprings, isn't it, of, of political commitment for many people. And um, we can see that vividly. In some of the cases I talk about, I mean, I guess the most famous example of that um, from the broad political history of Australia would be Alfred Deakin, you know, who we know just how, because he, he left a lot of papers, we know how rich um, and indeed unorthodox his spiritual mm. life. He was a, um, you know, a spiritualist who believed in the possibility, at least for a time, believed in the possibility of contacting the dead. Um, he, he engaged in all, you know, various forms of occult activity. Um, but more generally, um, you know, religion clearly plays a really significant role in in shaping political commitments and also political alignments. And Judith Brett, the historian and political scientist, has made this point about the early party system, about the ways in which a certain kind of Protestant view of the world, the emphasis on conscience, um, uh, you know, really fed into the definitions of liberal politics and the ways in which people understood liberalism and, and the way, alternatively, that Catholicism, with its stronger emphasis on, on disciplines and tradition and solidarities, fed into a labour politics. And I think that's a really powerful argument, which I certainly endorse in, in, in the book. I think it's a very important one. Um, so religion's very important in, in you know, the, the politics of the country. At least I would have thought, um, you know, it was a major driver until probably about the 1960s. Um, it, it's usually seen as one of the big issues at the heart of Labor's split in the 1950s, you know, that it, that split was to some extent around the issue of the role of the church, the Catholic church in politics. So they're really important, but, um, you know, it, it's entangled, isn't it, in other identities mm. like class identities and, and, you know, class forms a really important um, foundation stone, I think, a building block of the, of the political system, particularly the party system that emerges 
in Australia, that sense of Labor as the party of the workers, the sense of Liberals or, you know, under various other names as, as you know, the, kind of the, the party of the middle class. I think that that sort of notion is, is quite a powerful one. Of course, it's never quite reflected in reality. I mean, we know that, that people don't just vote on account of their uh, particular sort of class identities, but it, 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 I think it's been meaningful in terms of shaping party images and, 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 and it does to some extent reflect the basis on which those different parties have depended and, 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 and clearly when major demographic change occurs, political parties uh, need to be able to respond to it. And a good example of that is you know, the Labor Party in the 1960s during a period of rising affluence and I think probably declining class identity under you know the period when Whitlam became leader, it had to look elsewhere for, for political support, it had to build new alliances. And I'd suggest that the Liberal Party today is in a very similar sort of situation where there are really drastic forms of demographic change uh, that are occurring in traditional you know, areas of traditional liberal strength. And uh, that party is struggling at the moment to respond to that and is finding itself besieged not just by Labor, but, you know, obviously by community independence, by Greens in some places. And that's about demographic change, you know, the rise of more renters, for example, the rise of great numbers of younger professional people. But it, it does come back to politics in the end because we, we know that political parties can respond creatively and effectively to those sorts of changes, but, of course, they don't always do so. And uh, it can be a pretty agonising experience for those involved. Indeed, Yeah. I'm talking with Professor Frank Bongiorno. He is a historian and he's the author of this excellent book, Dreamers and Schemers, A Political History of Australia. Frank, the title is obviously very important as well, Dreamers and Schemers, and it certainly does bring up ideas of who you might be referring to in political history, those who were opposition leaders and political leaders and beyond. Certainly one of the biggest dreamers in my mind, and I'm sure in many others, would be Gough Whitlam, but no doubt there are others that you would characterise as a dreamer. So I wanted to get a sense from you, given that you've gone through so many periods, clearly from you know pre-contact all the way through to the current day, how do you see dreamers and schemers? Who are some of these dreamers and schemers and how do you characterise them as such? Yeah, look, I think the most successful politicians have had to be both, really, or at least had to have elements of both. And Gough Whitlam, who you mentioned, I think is a great example of that. And I agree that, you know, we, we remember Whitlam as a visionary and quite rightly. I mean, he, he did articulate in, in, in so many ways a kind of alternative, cosmopolitan, progressive version of Australia compared with, you know, the Menzies era that had, had come before it. Um, so... You know, it, it's reasonable, I think, to think of Whitlam as a visionary and a dreamer, but by God, he was also a schemer. Um, and, and he had to be. I mean, he came to the leadership of the party in early 1967, but a party that, that was full of, of um, factions and individuals who were hostile to him um, and, and to what he stood for. And, and a lot of what he has to do within the party over the three years that followed that, three to four years between 1967 and early 71, is really reducing the power of those within his own party who are opposed to his visions. And so, um, and a lot of that does involve the kind of, you know, what we oh, perhaps it's unfair to call it scheming, but it's, it, 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 you know, in a way it is a kind of scheming, the, the kind of scheming that almost any successful democratic politician has to engage in. So, you know, I, I think fundamental change in Australia has tended to rely on people who embodied a little bit of both. I mean, I talk about Ben Shifley in the 40s, the 1940s. So I think it's another example of this. I mean, Shifley often came across, performed for others. Um, a kind of identity is a bit of a cynic. I mean, I think the term hip pocket nerve that we still hear, yeah. you know, the idea that I think that's a Chifleyism, if I remember rightly. Um, so he, he presented himself as a bit of a cynic, but you don't have to look very hard to see that there was a lot of idealism um, sitting there, uh, you know, sort of uh, sometimes half buried by that cynicism. And so I think the, the combination of, you know, sometimes the, the dreamy, the quixotic and, 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 you know, that capacity to engage in the kind of hard grind of daily politics and, and indeed to do a bit of scheming has probably always been 
essential, I think, for, for, for really successful politicians. I mean, there are, of course, individuals who basically just get lost in their dreams and, and you know, I talk about some of those in the book, figures like, you know, the, the, the millenarian radical uh, Theophilus Gum, you know, uh, who descends into a, a kind of madness, I think, or, or William Lane, who, you know, is so disillusioned with Australia that he takes a a group of Australians to form a kind of commune, a utopian socialist commune in, in Paraguay in the 1890s. I mean, I think, you know, in, in those cases we are dreaming, we are dealing with with people whose whose dreams in, in some ways get the better of them. They lack a kind of grounding in in the realities and, 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 and uh, banalities, I suppose, of everyday politics. Yeah, certainly a lot of politicians have fallen foul of that, not being able to get around some of the pragmatic problems. Often, as you point out, there are a lot of party issues, keeping everyone in line being one of them, certainly with all the factions that exist in pretty much every party. When we're looking at the more modern day coming into, you know, the thousands, you also describe, you know, the global financial crisis and Kevin Rudd's prime ministership. And I was really interested in um, one of the quotes that you have from Kevin Rudd in the monthly from 2009, where you say he declared that the age of neoliberalism was essentially over, that that particular brand of free market fundamentalism, extreme capitalism and excessive greed was over, and that the task of social democrats was, quote, to save capitalism from itself. I often think of him as a bit of a dreamer in the way that he came up with so many different revolutions, so to speak, you know, education revolutions, etc., you know, really garnered a lot of youth support with the campaign that he had in 2007. But also it made me think about, you know, dreamers and schemers. Was he enough of a schemer to ensure that his vision was able to be implemented? I don't know. I wondered if you had a, a view as a historian looking back at the very recent past. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good question, Amy. I mean, yes, he, he clearly mobilises some real idealism, doesn't he, back mm. in 2007. Um, I, I was out of the country by the time the election happened, living overseas, but my, my sense of that period is that he did um, uh, you know, really um, attract a lot of um, uh, support from younger people, from people who are very disillusioned with you know, some aspects of the Howard era, um, you know, the issues around asylum seekers and obviously the, the, the work choices legislation, a whole range of things that I think um, Rudd, you know, was able to, to, to embody as a, as, a, as a kind of alternative and he captured something of that of that idealism, the need for an apology to the stolen generations, for instance, um, for action on climate change. I guess the problem with with Rudd really is that he lacked the skills of particularly party management in Australia and, and perhaps also people management, but particularly, I think, party management. Australia has a system still really of party government. So, you know, yes, we have independents and we have minor parties, but our elections in the end do still largely come down to a contest for executive power between two sides. Um, and it's easy to lose sight of that. And that was certainly the world that, that Rudd belonged to in 2007. You have to be good at managing your own political party. It's a, it's a part of doing government well. And, and I think it's pretty clear that he didn't do that very successfully. And, and his removal in 2010 had a lot to do with um, the failures of party management, the, the, the failure to recognise that in the end it was actually the party, the Labor Party, that had put him there. Um, you know, it's easy in an exciting election such as 2007 to imagine you're a kind of de facto president, um, that the people have kind of put you there and the party doesn't matter terribly much. But in fact, the party matters a lot. And, and I think that was probably his mistake. So if he lacked the skills of scheming, it was the lack of um, capacity to manage the, 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 the challenges of party government that I think um, ultimately led to, to Rudd's failure. I mean, Julia Gillard was a contrast with that. I think she knew the Labor Party much better and recognise the importance of, of managing um, of the organisation in the end that, that, again, had also put her into power. I wanted to close out this conversation talking about the everyday Australian or, you know, everyone gets to characterise them in different ways nowadays. Some people call different segments different things, like we hear about the quiet Australians and 
the forgotten Australians. There's a whole range of faceless Australians out there that politicians refer to. But if we think about the general population of Australians, you talk about them in the book also writing that surveys around trust in politicians have shown a decline in trust amongst people. And you talk about the usage of the term democracy sausage, which is something that certainly gains a lot of traction on Twitter to the point where there are bots that are created to track where you can get democracy sausages. Could you just, I guess, close out this conversation talking about where our political life is now in Australia, especially given that lack of trust from the general population, the voting base? Yes, I mean, multiple surveys over quite a period of time, I suppose, you know, probably a decade and a half, somewhere around there, perhaps a bit bit longer even, had shown a, a broad decline in political trust, you know, that they measured it in slightly different ways, but generally they'd ask things like, you know, does... Uh, 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 do, you, do you think your vote makes any difference or do you think, you know, uh, the government's on your side? Those sorts of questions. And generally the, the um, responses had been, you know, on, on the downgrade. I mean, the only exceptions there uh, really were occasionally when there's a change of government federally, um, the surveys shifted. So there was a, a decline, sorry, a slight increase in political trust in 1996 when John Howard was elected. Same happened when Kevin Rudd was elected in 2007. Until we got to 2020, and, and, and certainly during the pandemic, there was a massive increase in political trust um, in the surveying, showed up in the surveying done during 2020. But interestingly, by 2021, it was back heading south again to where it had been before. So I think that does suggest a degree of disconnect from from the political system. I mean, I, my, my sense would be people do largely imagine that, that the political system will deliver them services. They're not always happy with the quality of those services, but broadly speaking, you know, that there there is a, a, a trust that, you know, if, if uh, a pension payment is meant to arrive, it will arrive. So that mm. kind of bureaucratic aspect, I think people generally have a reasonable level of faith in. What they have less faith in is 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 kind of the more um, partisan, contentious aspects of politics. And I think also all those leadership changes that Australia had, you know, changes of prime minister, um, you know, really beginning, I suppose, with the overthrow of, of Rudd by Gillard in 2010, seems to, you know, have been a part of this story. I mean, can't it's, it's not easy to, to make the connection, but a part of the, the story of declining trust does seem to have been this sense that politics have become a kind of game and, uh, um, you know, uh, the politicians uh, were kind of treating it with less seriousness than, than um, many people thought it, it, it really deserved. Um, so that, that certainly saw a decline in political trust. The democracy sausage image, of course, emerges alongside this, this sense of political trust. And it's almost as if that image kind of expresses a sense that, you know, Australia and Australians, the political system, um, have a kind of integrity about them that's somehow independent of whoever happens to be holding office at any particular moment. And I think it, it speaks to a deeper sense of the political system as, as a part of our identity, perhaps not the most important part of our identity, but something that reflects a kind of easygoing style um, that, that belongs to the people rather than to the politicians who are kind of hus you know, hustling and bustling for office. So, yeah, it's interesting to think about, you know, those kinds of images and why they take hold and when they take hold. I mean, the first use of the term democracy sausage appears to have occurred in the ACT, this is the earliest anyone's traced it, the ACT in Canberra in 2012. So it's quite recent that people have started talking about the democracy sausage. <laughs> and I think that perhaps, you know, reflects something of, of our, our contemporary ambivalence, I suppose, about the ways in which our political system has been working over that period. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure compulsory voting plays a role in it being, you know, more of a part of our identity than in some other countries as well. It seems like there's certainly a ritual around voting that there didn't used to be, although now it seems like a lot of it will be sitting around the kitchen table filling out your postal vote. 
Yeah, that that's true. I think compulsory yeah. vote has become a really important part of of you know the, the way in which we understand what's distinctive about the Australian political system. Um, yeah, c- compulsory voting and perhaps a few other things too. Some policy areas like um, you know you think of Medicare and and also gun laws, which I think we now use to distinguish ourselves from the United States. And that sense that we have a somehow a fairer uh, system, I think, has has become. I think much more important as a, as a part of the political identity of Australians than it probably was when I was a kid, you know, back in the 1970s and 80s, yeah. Mm, yeah, that's an excellent observation. Frank, there's so much in this book. I can't really convey to those listening just how much we haven't discussed. So I really hope that people avail themselves of the chance to read the book so that they don't miss out on the delightful details of all of the time and people and events that you cover because it's uh, really enjoyable and also very accessible, I would say. So this is not for someone who necessarily studied history at uni like me. This is also for people who have no prior knowledge of Australian politics or Australian history, but also want to understand it as well as people who have knowledge of it. So I think you've really aimed it perfectly. And I want to also say congratulations on what a magnificent feat this book is. And um, yeah, it was really lovely chatting with you again, Frank, about these topics in such detail. Oh, thanks, Amy. I really appreciate your interest in the book. And as ever, it's been wonderful talking with you about it. And I'm particularly grateful for, obviously, the really close attention you've given it. I'm um, very flattered, I have to say. And and, uh, it's been a delight to speak with you. Oh, thank you, Frank. I hope you have a lovely holiday and I hope we get to talk again next year. Thanks. Me too, Amy. All the best. Thanks. I've just been speaking with historian Professor Frank Bongiorno, who works at the ANU in Canberra. He obviously teaches history there and supervises PhD students and many other things. He's also president of the Australian Historical Association, a very vital body for historians and those involved in the work of history. And we've just been discussing Frank's book, which is called Dreamers and Schemers, A Political History of Australia, out through La Trobe University Press, which is an imprint of Black Ink. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.